All right. Hey, great to see you today. Uh, why don't you take your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter six. And if you're joining us online, thank you so much. Whether you're on Facebook or whether you're on the website or YouTube, thank you so much for uh, joining us uh, today. Go ahead and make sure you uh, either make comments or ask for prayer. We'd love to serve you in any way possible. But as you saw, we are starting a brand new series uh, called This Must Be Greater Than That. And you're like, where does that come from? Where does that come from? It actually is kind of a paraphrase of a story that uh, came out of the 1930s, 1940s. There was a German pastor, his name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he's, you might have read one of his books called The Cost of Discipleship. But Bonhoeffer was basically concerned with two things. He was concerned with, the obviously, the rise of uh, Nazism and Hitler. And he was also concerned about the compromise of the German church and how the German church was getting very, very close uh, with, uh, you know, with the Fuhrer, all right, with, uh, you know, with Hitler. And so what he did is he said, I've, you know, we've got to do something to combat this. And what he ended up doing is he started a seminary. And this seminary was extremely intense. And he was like, I got to put some backbone. I got to train up some of these pastors so that they can then stand to get something that is just amazingly evil and wicked. And so he started this seminary and he brought all these, these folks in to study and to be trained and to learn their Bible. And they were big on the spiritual disciplines. They were big on the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, they started getting some questions and people were like, man, you guys are too intense. You guys are, you guys are just too committed. You got to back off a little bit. We had a friend actually that came to visit him to kind of check out what was going on. And while he was there, Bonhoeffer took him up on this hill. And as they walked up this hill, they were able to look in the distance. And in the distance, they could actually see the, the whole Third Reich. They could see planes taking off. They could see Hitler's soldiers being trained and marching in formation. And he sat there and he, and he looked at this and he looked out there and then he was talking about his seminary and he made that statement. He said, he said this, meaning his seminary, this must be greater than that. He said this, this work that we're doing must be greater than that. And on the front end, it looked like, you know what, that didn't really happen uh, at all because it looked like a small little seminary, it looked like an impenetrable force, but if you fast forward to today, it made a huge difference. I mean, Hitler's no more than a shameful memory. The German church has actually repented, and the seeds that they planted at that little seminary in Germany now have encouraged and discipled literally millions and millions of people through the years. In this moment that we're in right now, this cultural moment that we're in right now, the uh, culture, as we all know, has changed dramatically in just a generation from technology to sexuality to ethics. 6,000 churches in our country will close their doors just this year. That was even pre-COVID. There's been 20 million, 20 million young people have left the church in the last generation alone. The church is compromised in a hundred different ways. We have been seduced by power and we have complied to the cultural ethics we have lost our distinctiveness. We've lost our influence. And yet in all of that, Jesus says, I will, I will build my church. And you see that happening in places like Africa where the church is exploding. You see that happen in places like Asia and in China and in the Middle East. It's just exploding. But here, it seems like all we hear about in the U.S. church or the church in the West are celebrity pastor scandals, the child abuse, both in Baptists as well as Catholics, the indifference to humanitarian crises, to racism, to the flirtation with uh, political power. And yet in all of this, the church can, the church can be beautiful because grace is beautiful. 
There's a book that I'd encourage you to read. It's actually by a guy named John Tyson. It's called Beautiful Resistance. And I want to read a quote out of it. It's actually what kind of was the germination, I guess, of this series. And here's what Tyson says in one of the early chapters. He says, we have to remind ourselves of how history shows that Jesus's commitment to his church is unshakable. Though we have profaned his name among the nations, he retains a passion for his people. We may be hypocrites, we may return to our vomit like dogs, we may embarrass him and distort his message, but the cross is a covenant Jesus takes seriously. For better or worse seems to mean something to the Son of God. Love isn't an idea for God, it's who he is. One more paragraph. He said, this vision of God's passion for the church provides incredible hope. As much as we all have things we hate about the failures of the church, we have been guilty of doing the very things we criticize in her. We have judged and excluded others. We have failed sexually. We have been hypocrites. We have loved money and power and the praise of people. And yet Jesus still extends his heart and grace to us. Christ still seeks us out, welcomes us home, washes away our sin, and showers us with his love. He says the church can renew her calling because God loves her with an undying love. Beauty can resist brokenness because of the passion of the groom. The question is, will we respond to Jesus's passion for us and be faithful in our generation? And so in the next six or seven weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take, we're going to take areas of the church that are particularly troublesome and hold them up to the light of scripture and say, how do we make a difference? How do we change? Because some of, this is, some of this is corporate. It's the big C church out there. Some of us is the little C church at Biltmore Church, but a lot of it's just personal because the church is you. The church is me. And so uh, the first one we're gonna jump on is not the easiest one. And it is the fact that love must be greater than hate. So here it is in Luke chapter six, first verse, and we'll stay here for a second. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. A little context. This is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's got the longer version. This is Luke's version here. The Sermon on the Mount is where the crowds grew to such an extent. Jesus went up on a mountain to make sure that all the people could hear him. And he preaches a sermon there and he goes all through the different ethics of the kingdom. And he says, but I say to you who hear, and what he's saying is I'm gonna deconstruct some things that you've taken for granted. And then I'm gonna reconstruct some things in place of it. And so out the Sermon on the Mount, you see him things like, you know, you've heard it say this, but I say to you this. You've heard it say, you know what, uh, don't murder. I say to you, don't even, don't even get angry with your brother. So he's always lifting up, he's lifting up the ethic, but he's going from outward to inward. I'm going from outward morals, I'm going to inward transformation. And Luke says the same thing, but I say to you who hear. And uh, there's three key words I want you to see here. They're highlighted. First one is love. Second one is actually gonna be hate and the third one's gonna be enemies and it's gonna get me asking the question, who is your enemy? So obviously love is kind of a shallow word for us today. We use love in a thousand different ways and we use it even knowing there's a difference. We'll say I love brownies, I love my wife and I love God and we'll say it all in the same, with the same word. They mean different things. It tends to be emotional. It's like Cupid is sitting there and he's shooting the arrow and it's some kind of emotion we cannot say no to. It's a force we can't do anything about. 
Some of you all are Bible students and you understand that the word that he used there is a pretty familiar word to Bible students since the word agape, which simply means this. It just is the idea of selfless love that is not emotional as much as it is an act of your will. It's not saying we gotta like your enemies, it's got a saying that you and I have got the idea of sacrificial care, deep love, costly love, and it's the love that obviously God showed for us in Christ. So um, here's the one that's a little harder. It says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Now again, hate's kind of one of those words too that's thrown around a little bit. Uh, sometimes somebody will pull in front of you, they'll speed up and then slow down, and you're like, I hate you. Or I was in the airport, flew last week for the first time since uh, COVID began, sitting over here at the Asheville airport and I'm kind of doing my stuff and then I hear some argument just kind of get, the voices started to get raised higher and higher. I think maybe one of them's name was Karen, I'm not sure. But what Karen said to the other lady was I could tell they were up, she was upset. And what I finally heard her say was, my mother died of COVID, how dare you take your, she, she had a mask, the other lady had a mask on, she just taking it down for a second. How dare you take your mask on? My my mom died of COVID. I hate people like you. So, I mean, it's, it's right there, right there. And we use it loosely. Obviously, it can be misused today. Sometimes people will say, you know what, you hate people because you simply don't approve of a person's worldview or the choices that they've made. Sometimes it's deeper. People say, you know what, I've heard people down through the years, I hate my parents. I don't like the way that my dad did this or my mom kept me under her thumb. Or we have exes that maybe did you wrong or even ethnic groups that maybe based on a bad experience or a, an experience with an individual. Like, I hate those people. Coworkers who stole credit, politicians we disagree with. Sometimes it's like right, right there. One of the most drastic ones that came, it's not too far from here, actually happened at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston. And in June, 2015, 21-year-old Dylan Roof sat in on a prayer meeting and opened fire with a handgun, killed nine people, wounding another. All the victims were African-American. Roof stated later that he hoped to inspire a race war. You think, well, man, later on, he kind of came to his senses and hated what he did. Remorse. But in his jail cell, here's what he wrote. He said, I would like to make it crystal clear. I do not regret what I did. I am not sorry. I have not shed a tear for the innocent people that I killed. I have shed a tear of self-pity for myself. I feel pity that I had to do what I did in the first place. Like that's what, that's what hate looks like. And the question that you have to have and the question I want you to think about is who is your enemy? And I've been doing this church deal a long time and I know our first thing is, well, I don't, you know, pastor, I don't have any enemies. I mean, enemies, you know, I mean, I love Jesus. I don't really have any enemies at all. Well, the Jewish audience Jesus was going to talk to, they didn't have to guess. Their enemy was right in front of them. As you all know, 70 years of Roman occupation, 80% taxation. People could, they could make a Jewish guy take his equipment a mile, hence to go the second mile in Matthew's account. All of that being said is they understood, you know what? They had a face. That's the soldier. That's the soldier that stole my stuff. That's the soldier that hit my son in the face. So what I want to ask you is, who is the face, when you think about your enemy, you don't have to say it out loud, but who is the face that comes to your mind when you're like, you know what, that's my enemy. You gotta take this from philosophical to the real world. Now, you can get enemies a bunch of different ways. You can get enemies sometimes by doing wrong. If you do something wrong, you hurt somebody, they consider you an enemy. Earlier in this chapter, you can have an enemy by doing something right. 
Earlier in this same chapter, it's like, listen, if people revile you and persecute you on account of me, man, blessed are you. Jesus said this, he says, listen, no servant is above his master. If they called me the devil, they're not gonna throw you a birthday party. And so sometimes you can have an enemy for doing what's wrong, sometimes for doing what's right. Definition is one who shows dislike or opposition to your well-being. Let's just be kind of clear. In a 24-hour news cycle, we are told constantly, we are told constantly on talk radio, we are told constantly on uh, cable news, we are told over and over again on social media who our enemies are, who is worthy of respect, who is our tribe, who are the deplorables. And we are joking ourselves if we think the church is immune to that. If you think the church is immune, just go on Facebook of some of people even in our church and you will see People will say, you know what, you don't look like me, you don't vote like me, you don't act like me, and so you're not part of my tribe. And so those people, we treat them like they are our enemy. And interestingly, in Matthew's account, it's actually prefaced by saying, you've heard it say, you've heard it say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, and then he says this verse right here. The reason that he said that was a misinterpretation that the Jewish scholars got way back in Leviticus where they basically said, because you know, the Bible never says, even in the Old Testament, never says, hate your neighbor. Doesn't say that. What they did is they twisted a verse out of Leviticus to say, you know what, the only people you're obligated to love, and they basically said, you know what, people just like you, other Jews, all those other ones, you can hate. And so Jesus takes it around and says, listen, you need to have some enemy love. So let me ask you again. Who is it, who is it personally that could be considered an enemy? Some of you, again, it's that, it's that ex who uh, doesn't pay child support, makes your life miserable. It's that crazy neighbor who is always annoying you. It's that parent who puts, your, puts you down. It's that friend who betrays you. It is that professor who gets up and mocks those dumb Christians. And when that happens, the hard part is there's a sense of justice that's part of the image of God, God made you. It just got jacked up during the fall. But that part of the image of God says, something's wrong, man, the scales are out of whack. He did this to me, she did this to me, so I gotta do this to them. So the question then is, how in the world am I supposed to actually love enemies? All right, it gets thick right here. How do I love my enemy? Look at verse 28. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Which by the way, this is, both these are verbal. Abuse is not physical abuse in this case, this is verbal abuse, insult. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And verse 29, one of the most misunderstood verses in all the Bible. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Matthew says, you know, if you hit you on the left side of the cheek, then offer the right also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So let me just kind of put this, uh, I'm gonna try to give you two frames of reference. The first one would be this, is respond graciously. How do I love people? How do I love people that are my enemies? I gotta respond graciously. Bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Man, is, that is hard, that is hard. When you get that nasty email, what is the natural, I'll tell you right, the natural fleshly, when I get an email that is, chalk full of logical fallacy. Every part in me wants to make them look stupid. It does, all right? It wants to, do you understand? One of them, I'm gonna put this in there. Um, four or five years ago when we didn't, uh, when we stopped using Baptist in the name, 
uh, and got some emails. And I remember a couple of emails actually said, if it was good enough for John the Baptist, should be good enough for us. Everything in me wanted to go, you do know that was not about a denomination, don't you? You do know that's because he's baptizing people. Be proud I didn't. I thought it, I just didn't do it. The idea is responding graciously. It's hard, because why? Somebody speaks poorly about you, maligns you, sends you the mean email. What do you want to do? You want to all caps back retaliation. What does he say to do? He says, bless them and then pray for them. Now, there's a big difference between praying for somebody and praying about somebody. You pray about somebody, that's the prayers like, man, I pray his plane goes down. That's what I'm praying. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying praying for. You're like, well, how do I pray for them? This particular part of scripture is particularly about unbelievers, just so you understand. This is not talking about how you deal with fellow people, fellow Christians. This is, the main context is how do I deal with people outside the faith who are giving you a hard time that are enemies like that? So what do you pray for? You pray they come to know Christ. You pray that your heart toward them would change, that God would give you the strength to forgive. But then here, uh, here's the hard one. In verse 29, it says, turn, I mean, you know it, turn, the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. And when you hear that verse, there's a lot of what ifs that come in there, right? What if somebody breaks into my house? What if, I mean, what if, what if somebody, what if somebody smacks me in the head? What am I, am I supposed to be a pacifist? Now this verse in particular, his whole theological systems have been built just around this verse. It has been misinterpreted to teach pacifism, uh, that Christians are to be doormats. It has been taught to be conscientious objectors to military service. Let me tell you what it's not saying, just to kind of let some of the folks are like, I hate that verse. I don't even want. It's not teaching. It's not teaching you have to be a doormat. It's not teaching if somebody breaks into your house, is walking out with all your money, that you've got to go, I call you forgot the silver in the basement. That's not what he's talking about. This is actually not even talking about Violence. You're like, how do you know he's not talking about that? Well, I'll give you an example. If you go ahead a few chapters, Luke 22, Jesus tells his disciples before he sends them out, he says this. He says, hey, if you don't have a sword, sell a coat and get a sword. You're going to need one. Another place he makes a weapon, a whip, drives people out of the temple. Romans 13 actually says that government is to be a servant to exact justice. And then just basically, when you slap somebody, you just slap them in the cheek. Have you ever seen an MMA move that teaches you to slap them in the cheek? No, none of that. It's not about violence. It's actually about insult. It's about dishonor. In the Jewish custom, if you were to slap somebody, that is like the ultimate insult. Like, I think nothing of you. As a matter of fact, when the Christians were getting kicked out of the temple, because the Jews were becoming Christians and they got kicked out of the temple, one of the last, they had this ceremony of kicking them out of the temple. And one of the last things that they would do is they would, when they went through all this stuff, the last thing they'd do, they'd slap them on the face. It's like, this is the ultimate insult to your dignity. It's like, you are, you are not worth anything. Check out Acts 23 sometime. The apostle Paul gets slapped and he gets so angry because of that dishonor. Again, what does that look like in the 21st century? 21st century probably looks like somebody posts something bad about you or your church or your family on Facebook. That's what it kind of looks like. Somebody insults you in a staff meeting. When somebody comes at you, you've got about three choices. One of them is to slap back, right? 
Somebody slaps you, somebody insults you, somebody puts you down, you put them right back down. And a lot of us, we think, man, a spiritual gift of sarcasm is like awesome. And you, that's, that's what I can do. Second thing is you can just be totally passive. Just be a doormat. It's like, sure, just hit me again. Or you can do what it's teaching here and you can reoffer the relationship. Now be, be careful. I'll probably get more emails in the last couple of years about boundaries than anything else. And I think it's because we've talked so much about servanthood and we've talked so much about loving, you know, loving your enemies and forgiveness and all of that. The obvious question is like, are there boundaries? And there are boundaries. You can see them right here. He says, turn the other cheek, re-offer the relationship. But it doesn't mean just sit there and get hit over and over and over again. You don't have like unlimited cheeks. It's like, turn the other cheek, re-offer the relationship. I'll give you an example. There's a passage in Romans 12 that actually preachers like me, we oftentimes use one of the verses and it's somewhat out of context. And here's what it actually says in Romans 12. It says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Virtually the same thing Jesus is saying here. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Now usually we do the opposite, correct? <laughs> when our enemy rejoices, we weep. And when our enemy weeps, we rejoice, right? And what he's saying is, no, no, no. Turn the whole thing around. Turn the whole thing around. And what you've got to ask is, uh, what do you do? What do you do when the office atheist goes into his whole spiel about the dumb, hypocritical Christians? Do you respond or do you show him some care, show her some, some, some uh, concern? What happens when your relative at Thanksgiving from another political party, another political persuasion begins to just demagogue the other party. It's like, there's no way they can be in that party if they're a Christian. There's no way they can be a Christian if they're in that party. What do you do? Do you start to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer you or do you show care? Do you show concern? Here's what he's saying. The grace and the glory of Jesus is more important than my name. At some point, you gotta be able to say, God's grace, God's name, God's reputation is above mine. So I am going to basically joyfully choose to love instead of having my way. Let me say it again. Are boundaries, are boundaries okay? Absolutely. We don't, that's not the sermon. That's not the sermon tonight. Um, there's a book. If you're like, okay, when can I say no? And what boundaries should I put around? Cause there are boundaries. Like, you know what? I'm going to love you, but I'm not going to continue to let you hurt me or my family. Just, you need to check out Dr. Henry Cloud's book called boundaries. Great book. Just read it. There is a time where you can say, no, this doesn't go any further. But the idea is, you know what? Um, I can love you and still set boundaries. Now, go to the next couple of verses. We're going to jump through these a little bit quicker than that one. Verse 30 says this. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Real quick, this is not banking philosophy. This little phrase right here, everyone who begs from you is a really interesting term. It's not talking about the con man. It's not talking about the Ponzi scheme. What he's talking about, and he's not actually even talking about the beggar over there on I-26 saying, you know what, I'll, you know, I, I need, some, need some money. That's not what he's talking about. He's actually talking about the phrase is an unbeliever who knows you're a believer and is trying to see does your generosity match up to the gospel that you're talking about all the time. In other words, are you a generous person like you say your Savior is a generous person, which is why we always say God is generous with us through the gospel, so we want to be generous with other people. Now, I'm going to get to the last few verses a little quicker. Verse 31 says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them, golden rule. 
If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. In other words, people that love you, they're easy to love. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. In other words, if somebody scratches your back, you scratch them, that's not distinct at all. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. He's saying there is a kingdom ethic that has got to be different. You have to look distinctively different than the people around you. And this is one of those ways that stands out. Last couple of verses. This is the bookend. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. That is, God does not miss it. And here's the phrase I want you to hone in on. And you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful. This is called common grace. When it says he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, it's common grace. Common grace means, you know what? God gives them air to breathe. He gives them food to eat. That's common grace. And then he ends it by saying, listen, be merciful even as your, even as your father is merciful. So jot this second one down. Is we want to reflect God's grace. Did you see that little phrase that says, and you will be sons of? You will be sons of does not mean if I act this way, then all of a sudden I'll kind of evolve into a Christian. The idea is, as a believer, this is evidence. You're starting to reflect what God looks like. I mean, one of the coolest things that I always get, and I got a picture of him in my office. I love it when I go to, when I went to Wichita Falls and these areas and I'd see guys that knew my dad. They're like, man, you look just like your dad. I love that. I mean, it's like, I love that. It's like the four boys when we hear stories about that, we just like are little kids again. In the same way, when I post some photo from you know, bygone years that I'm about the same age as, let's say, Tyler is now. And how many people are like, you know what, man? You can't believe how much you and Tyler favor each other. As a dad, I'm like, I love that. That's the picture here. It's like, you know what? You're starting to look like, he's starting to look like your father. You're representing him. You're reflecting him. And why is that? The reason we're called to love this way is because why? That's the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is we were enemies of God and God loved us. I mean, that is the gospel. God showed enemy love toward us all over the Bible. Colossians 1, verse 21 and 22 says it this way. It says, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, and he is reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He models it for us. Think about the night he got arrested. The night he got arrested is one of the most fascinating things you can do. It's like the gospel slow down on that last week of Jesus's life. But there's no more holy place than like in the garden when he's wrestling with his father. And it's like, not my will, but your will be done. But if you remember, when they come to get him, remember what happens? They come to get him and it's like, that's the guy. And then Peter takes a sword out and whops off that guy's ear. And what, what does Jesus do? Jesus like, Peter, you're gonna live by the sword, you're gonna die by the sword. And what is it? He takes the ear and puts it back on the soldier's head. Man, if I was that soldier, I'd be like, you know, arrest is over. I mean, that, he just put my ear back on, that's done. And then, but they start to drag him off. And what happens? He's like, you know what? He looks back at Peter. He's like, Peter, you understand, I could call legions of angels and just melt everybody here. But I lay, nobody takes my life. I lay down my life voluntarily. And then you just think about the whole idea of the cross. Just the, the spikes, the metal that made the spikes that went into his hands and into his feet He's like, you know what? I made the metal that made the spikes. I spoke the trees into being that I'm now hanging on. 
somewhere in there, somewhere in there, don't you just every now and then wish that, every now and then, don't think less of me, every now and then I think, man, I just wish one time, just like one guy, you'd have just like, just melted right in front of everybody. Just one guy and then going to the cross, which like that would have been, that would have been awesome. See Jesus do that, just like Terminator, just melt somebody, but obviously Jesus didn't do that. And so when you think about it, um, love your enemy. So I was reading some old stuff. The hallmark of the early church was this verse. This was the John 3.16 of the early church. Now personally, let's kind of drive it home personally for a second. He says at the end, be merciful as your father is merciful. Question, do people say that about you? Now don't, it's easy to say yes and kind of self-evaluate. Not long ago, I asked Lori. I said, am I merciful? Man, I got a great wife because I knew it. And she said, she goes, you're more merciful than you used to be. It's like, okay, that's like a merciful wife that is giving me that answer. You're more merciful than you used to be. Ask, if you're married, ask your spouse, hey, baby, am I, am I a merciful person? Am I a person full of grace? Am I full of forgiveness? Think about it. There's difficult people everywhere, in your apartment complex, in your family, at your work, all of that. And you gotta ask the question, who is it that you need to, let's just do two things. Who do you need to pray for? What enemy do you need to pray for? It's like, why should I pray? Here's what'll happen is what I found out. People that I'm really upset toward, and, I'm, and it's, because here's what enemies will do. If you let it sit there and fester, I mean, it will just, you'll review it in your mind all the time. It'll just, you'll be sitting in the shower and you'll think about what they did or the dishonor they showed you or whatever. And you're like, man, I'm gonna, you just, you just, you're festering. And they, it is very difficult to walk in the joy of the Christian life and be a bitter person. I would say it's almost impossible. So who is it that you need to pray for? You pray for them enough. What you'll find is whether they change or not, you begin to change your attitude toward them. Who do you need to pray for? And secondly, ask, who do I need to forgive? We've taught on forgiveness 25 times in the last decade. Maybe not that many. Forgiveness is I'm releasing, you don't owe me anymore. God forgave me, and so I'm forgiving you. Who is it that you need to pray for? Who is it that you need to forgive? Uh, I would say this, it, you're like, I, I can't do that. And you would be correct. There's no way you and I in our flesh can do this. This is like mission impossible to love people like he's asking us to love them. Uh, at the start, I talked about uh, the Dylan Roof massacre uh, from 15. You can see some of these online, but uh, when his trial began, the family, you heard the stories of the people they had lost and uh, sons and daughters and wives and everybody. And you just, but you heard some of the statements that these, the victims' families made. And you're like, man, that is, that is the fact that love must be greater than hate. One daughter of a murdered victim, she said to Ruth, you took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never ever hold her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. Another sister of another victim, she said one thing, and the one that was the victim, was his name was Dwayne. One thing that Dwayne always enjoined in our family is that 
taught me that we are family that love built. We have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. By far, the most dramatic one was actually a father who lost both his wife and his son to Dylan Roof. And he's look, he looks at Dylan Roof and he says this, I forgive you, son. My family forgives you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent and give your life to the one who matters most. He can change your heart. Jesus can change your actions, but we forgive you. I mean, he just made national news. What was interesting is not long ago, because that was like in 15, but just like not long ago, they did an interview with that guy that said that. And the interviewer is basically asking them, it's like, you know what, all this time has passed. And they said, you, you know, do you have any second thoughts about what you said to the person that murdered your wife, to the person that murdered your son in cold blood? Do you have any second thoughts about forgiving them at all? He said, uh, people all, and this is the dad, he's like, Pe people want to know why. People want to know why I would forgive the person that uh, shot my wife and shot my son. I chose to, he goes, I, I chose to forgive the racist killer because I believe and trust God's word that when he tells me vengeance is his to repay, then it's not mine. I don't need to avenge the vile deeds of Dylan Roof myself because God will avenge, God will repay, and the scriptures promise that. Loved ones, that is graciously responding. That is reflecting grace in an amazing way. So by your heads, let me pray for us all. Fathers, we embark on a journey that is uh, so needed, but so above us. Our prayer is that in these next five, six, seven weeks that you would do a work. You know, big C, yes. Little C, absolutely. But our prayer right now is you would begin it in us personally. God, I pray for the people watching. There's people watching that have been holding on to something somebody has done and hating that person for what they've done and it's killing them. I pray that you'd give them the freedom to forgive. And if they don't know how to forgive, help them to understand your forgiveness of them. If they don't know how to love the enemy, reinforce the enemy love you had toward them. God, I pray again that in this time where we examine individually in us as a church. God, just do a heart transplant that would, above all, help us to be the disciples in the way of Jesus. Just like 90 some odd years ago, when one of your prophets says, you know what, this must be greater than that. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.